ex-hospital chaplain, long-time licensed to this place, and an associate vicar these days is what we refer to you as, until he gets too old to be allowed that title. (laughs) So shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Steve. Thank you for his ministry amongst us. Thank you for your, your being with him in his preparation. Father, for us, we ask that you would help us to be people who are counted amongst the wise today, who hear and respond rightly to your word. Speak clearly, for we, your people, are listening, Father. Amen. Oh, yours, mate. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm quite amazed at the fact that people are in the wrong seats because, you know, when, when, you, know, when you stand here, you expect to see certain people in certain places because that's where they always sit. But all of a sudden, we've got two congregations together and so there has probably been a bit of needle this morning because people are sitting in other people's chairs. So let peace descend as we open God's word together. So, um, this is the third sermon in a series, looking at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're not doing a close study of these books, rather we're kind of dipping into them in a way that demonstrates the restoration of God's people after the exile, and what we might learn from that in our lives, and also in our church, God's church. We haven't covered the passage in this, in this series, we haven't covered a particular passage, but it, it was back in chapter 7 that Ezra, the priest, the author of the book and the hero of the story, actually makes an appearance along with fellow priests and temple, wor- uh, temple workers who have just spent four months walking from Babylon to Jerusalem. Um, it had been 57 years since the first remnant, the first group of people who came back to uh, Jerusalem, had finally finished repairing the temple under the man with the wonderful name, Zerubbabel. Um, but during that 57-year period, not much else had happened, not to the people themselves. The people didn't really grow in their walk with the Lord. Instead, they became satisfied with the ceremony and the ritual of temple worship. In other words, they had grown complacent, really, because it was enough for them to simply go to church. Uh, They did the religious things because that was the thing to do, not out of love for the Lord, but just because it was the thing to do, one feels. Now, I have to just go to an aside for the moment. It's hard for us, and I'm sure many will agree with this, it's hard for us to look at certain hardline aspects of the law that were imposed upon the Jewish people, um, imposed on them by God. And to our mind, uh, there are some unsavory outcomes that it's hard for us to grasp. Like, for instance, marriages being dissolved and wives and possibly children being sent away as we have heard in our reading today. 
the account that we read and seek to learn from is real. But we are not the Jews. We do not live under the old covenant as the Jewish people did. We live under the new covenant that Jesus Christ came to offer us. So the accounts are not about us, but they are for us. The accounts are not about us, but they are for us. We can learn from them, and we must. The problem facing Ezra was intermarriage. The Israelites had long been commanded not to intermarry. The rules in place for reasons of religion, not racism. Put simply, if you, a Jew, married a pagan, then you would inevitably adopt some pagan ways. Even it was simply allowing certain pagan things to be permitted within your own home in the interests of harmony. Then your children and your household would in part be influenced by them. This had been the problem throughout Israel's history. Almost immediately after escaping slavery in Egypt, Israelite men took Midianite women as partners and incurred God's judgment. Later, the kingdom established Solomon took numerous foreign wives and was led astray by them, so much so that he was bowing the knee to their idols by the end of his life. And right up to the defeat and throughout the period of the exile, the people of God were intermarrying with the neighboring nations and adopting pagan practices. God had explicitly commanded the Jews not to intermarry with pagans, But they did it anyway, along with other breaches of the law. And the result was judgment and exile. In this story, they've finally returned to exile and rebuilt the temple. But they persisted in practicing one of the things that sent them into exile in the first place. And when Ezra saw this, he was shocked and he wept in sorrow. How did this happen? Were they unusually sinful or stupid people? Or perhaps they were just a bit like us? This is what happened to the Jews. The message of God was obscured due to their focus on other things that didn't really matter. They become complacent and half-hearted. They followed the rituals and the observances and they mistook those for worshipping God. Their hearts were not right with God but as long as they carried out all of the practical outworkings and the appearances that was all that mattered to them and anyway there was personal wealth to be made and success to be sought after. What did God do about it? Well, he took away the things that, were, that they were focusing upon, so hopefully, so that they would refocus upon him, upon God. Over time, their political power, the political power of Israel and Judah was shattered, in spite of the fact that those had been 
the major players in that region for a very long time. Eventually, they were defeated by powerful neighbors, and now, and then they were exiled, as we know. But now, they are allowed to return to their former land, and God's purpose at this time was to restore them as a light to the nations. That's what, they, that's what God wanted for them in the first place. But what about Jerusalem? When Ezra arrived back to Jerusalem, it was a sparsely populated backwater of a town, the place that used to attract luminaries from all over the known world was a broken relic. The city didn't even have walls to protect it at this stage, just heaps of rubble. Perhaps the greatest focal point of the Jews before the exile was, of course, the temple. It was the hub of Jewish worship. The temple had contained the Ark of the Covenant, which, of course, as we know, contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and among, uh, uh, it had a number of other very important sacred historical artifacts in the, in the, um, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The temple in those days was seen as being the place where God was literally present here on earth. But when they were invaded, the Babylonians tore the temple down. Yes, it's true that the first exiles who returned rebuilt it. But what did it look like in comparison with its former glory? True, all of the furniture was returned, but the one key thing was missing. The Ark of the Covenant. In all of the lists of articles returned to the temple, the Ark is conspicuously absent. And in fact, in the whole of history, no one has ever had a clue where it went. Not even Indiana Jones. In the Jewish religion and culture over the centuries, the temple was great. But that wasn't the point. Jerusalem was a beautiful city. But that wasn't the point. The Davidic kingdom, with all its power and majesty, had a glorious past. But that wasn't the point either. What was the point? It was and is Almighty God, his character, his qualities, his attributes. The Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, a blessing to all people groups by pointing them to the true and living God, living by God's laws that would reveal God's character. But God's people had lost their love of God They maintained the trappings of faith, but largely left God behind in their lives and their actions. They They gave other people the wrong impression of God, and thus diminished his glory. In short, the people drifted away from God due to their misunderstood expectations. If you don't understand God and his intentions... Well, you're likely to, to misinterpret situations around you. 
And that can apply to us too. If we do not really know God, then we'll have unreasonable expectations about what he will do, about what he will permit in our lives. And largely, I think that's exactly what happened to the Jews. Hadn't God made the Jews a promise through the prophet Jeremiah, though? Martin referred to this in his sermon two weeks ago. He foretold, Jeremiah foretold their exile and their return. And he did so, we can read about it in Jeremiah 29. This passage of scripture is often used in pastoral situations to encourage people that God is with them and he has a plan for them. But when you read it in context, it has a whole different meaning. This is what the Lord says, Jeremiah writes, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and place you where I have banished you. Where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. When God told them that, told them that he would restore their fortunes, they wrongly assumed that all of the former things would be restored. They had the wrong expectation of his promise, though. He was going to bring them back to the land, but the restoration that he was after was right relationship with him. He was their fortune. He was their future. He was their hope. But they confused God with the trappings of religion. We shouldn't judge them too harshly. Because many so-called Christians in our age have done the same thing for largely the same reasons. God didn't meet their expectations and so their faith has weakened and so on. I remember a conversation that I, I was reminded of it when I was preparing. This conversation I had with a middle class um, woman, a lady, um, about 50 years ago, I, I was only... I was only young. And she said to me, I do so like going to church. One meets such worthwhile people there. (laughs) So attendance and conformity and appearance and being seen were all that mattered. Was there a faith in there somewhere? Well... I have to say, not obviously, now that I think about it, and not in some of the finer details of her behavior to others that I remember. But what about helping in church? Was she willing to participate, to serve God by serving others, to contribute in some way, perhaps 
helping with the children's work or even reading a lesson. Oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. I've got a seat at the back that needs keeping warm. And that was an attitude. Of course, we don't see that, do we? And in some churches, there are those who have adopted universalism as a default position in churches today, and we see a lot of it. Jesus is my way, but maybe not, but, but, but maybe not your way, but that's okay. After all, we don't want to offend, do we? We want to be inclusive, not exclusive. So whatever you say is fine. Or perhaps other churches increase, wanting to increase attendance might promote a version of the gospel, gospel that guarantees financial prosperity and perfect health. There's a division taking place in our church, in our time, I should say. Not just in the days of Ezra, dilution of faith and adopting ungodly lifestyles is increasing. The turning point of the story in Ezra is his public prayer in chapter 9. He confesses the sins of the nation. He does it. He weeps. And confesses himself. Not that he is guilty, but he takes that load for the whole nation and he cries out to God as if he himself has done it. He acknowledges that, the part, that in the past Israel has been completely unfaithful to the covenant made with God in Sinai. The Jews have been rightly punished. God should have destroyed the entire nation, but instead he had mercy upon them. God had punished them less than they deserved and returned them to the land that they'd been driven from. But they, in turn, desecrated his laws. God's faithfulness was rewarded with the Jews' rebellion. And from our reading in chapter 10, yes, I have eventually got back to our reading for today, we can see that the remnant joined Ezra in repenting and turning away from their sin and back to God in those days. Moreover, the faithful took the drastic and painful step of sending away their foreign wives. Ezra preserved the remnant by turning the people's focus back to the character of God. In our age and our awareness, as God detaches the true Christian faith from the trappings of culture, there may well be dark days ahead. But then Scripture tells us that the wheat will have to be separated from chaff. The character of God's people will be refined as pure gold. Images that we read about in Scripture And what about us? Is it possible that we might recognize half-heartedness in our relationship with God, the God who saves us? Martin featured this in his first sermon, and I've nicked one of his slides. 
God is still in the restoration business. God is still in the restoration business. God is still in the restoration business. In his letter to the Romans, Paul describes our great salvation and God's mercy towards the remnant of faithful Israel and non-Jewish people alike, all of those who trust him. In chapter 11, Paul explains who God is, who we are, and how our merciful God saved us. And then in chapter 12, he tells us what our response should be in light of who God is, who we are, and what he has done. And in the first two verses of chapter 12, we read this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I showed you this next slide earlier on, giving the titles of the sermon series, but there's an error. (laughs) Your notices will tell you that today I should be speaking about restoration of the temple Whereas this list says that it should be restoration of the people. I thought about that when I noticed the error. And I did notice the error before I read this sermon. But it occurred to me that we might reasonably and properly combine those two titles and call this sermon Restoration of your temple, restoration of my temple, restoration of our temple, restoration of where I worship God, restoration of where you, where we worship God, restoration of how I worship God, restoration of how we collectively worship the God who loves us so much. That's what restoration is about. Are we up for that? I'd like to leave you with this final. I want to go back, if I may, to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. But this time I want to read it from the message version of the Bible. quite simply because the language speaks more vividly to me, and I hope it does to you. So let me read this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary lives, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking about life, and place it before God as an offering. Embrace what God does for you, Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. 
Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level, God brings the best out of you and develops well-informed maturity in you. Almighty God, we thank you for those precious words. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn Not so that we can look around and think that we've got it made when others haven't. Not to particularly point fingers at other churches and be critical. But all of us, all of your people, Lord, need to develop a willingness to be restored. All of us, Lord, need restoration that comes from walking more closely with you. And we pray, Lord, that that would be on our hearts today and in the days to come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.